What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to the Core Console RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. And we got two very special guests today. Guests, go ahead and introduce yourselves. One of them, you listeners are going to know because he's been on, this is his third appearance. Number three. He's basically a veteran, but go ahead. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Hi, guys. My name is Tessa. I'm a PGY2 in critical care here at Wesley Medical Center. So going on, guys. It's Brian Gord. I'm an emergency medicine clinical specialist, and uh, Tessa has the unfortunate opportunity to be on rotation with me this month. And so <laughs> ready to come call up the core console guys uh, give them a shout out and see what's going on with them boys. Well, of course, <laughs> Whew, it would be a it would be a critical care rotation if it wasn't for us. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really appreciate you guys doing this. Uh, for everyone listening, we just spent the last hour while they're sitting here trying to work and be busy <laughs> of me just messing around with this mixer as if I didn't have any sort of clue what I'm doing. Brian's there saving lives, and we're trying to figure out the yeah. audio tech. Oh, one more minute. <laughs> <laughs> So I appreciate y'all's patience and uh, and doing taking the time to do this with us. This is going to be really cool. Um, Tessa, can you kind of give us just a little bit of background, like what made you get into critical care, and is that what you're actually? Are you a PGY two? Is that right? Yeah. What kind of got you interested in the critical care route? Can you kind of give us some background? Yeah. So I initially was interested in doing a residency because I wanted to be in the hospital setting as a pharmacist um, in that role with the healthcare team with physicians and nurses and um, all the other healthcare providers we have. And so going through my PGY1, I had several rotations through our intensive care units and um, just trying to picture myself in different areas in the hospital. I just really felt like I fit well in um, my practice style and um, the relationships and interactions that I had with patients um, in our intensive care units really um, shifted my interests to that area. And um, I ended up applying for our PGY2 here. And here I am. That's awesome. Great. Where'd you do your PGY1? At Leslie here. Okay. Gotcha. That's very cool. So, uh, what do you think? How long have you been on Brian's rotation? So I got one more week with him. Okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay. So you know how it is. Gotcha. That explains it. So um, give us uh, some insight. Kind of what was the, is, do you feel like there's a difference from going from PGY1 to PGY2? experience too because I did my PGY1 here so it was an extremely smooth transition PGY2. Um, I do feel like I am busier and I have more projects and things going on but at the same time I am still able to um, see my patients every day and get that work done as well and it helps because I'm familiar with the system and the um, computers systems that we use and things like that. So it's been a fairly smooth transition for me. I think going to another facility for your PGY2 would obviously be a little different. Right. So since it's PGY2 and it's in critical care, are you rotating only in that type of setting the whole year? Even if it's not with Brian, but with other people? Yeah, so here at our um, facility and in, in our PGY2 program, we have now 
five ICUs that I will rotate through and um, still do an, our emergency medicine rotation. We have an overnight ICU pharmacist that I'll rotate with, and then as well as our infectious disease pharmacist, I'll rotate with her as well. Um, we have some other elective opportunities here um, at our program with um, our nephrologists. We have the opportunity to rotate for a couple of weeks with them and then one of our neurologists as well. That's awesome. So do you think, uh, what kind of intensive care unit do you see yourself working in, like surgery and trauma? Um, what do you think? N neurosurge? Um, that's tough. I'm still kind of trying to figure that out a little bit, but I'm leaning more towards probably a medical ICU or potentially neurocritical care surgery, but... Um, I've really enjoyed my time in our medical ICU. Andy, she loves the ED. Oh, of course, Andy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she forgot about that part. What is she thinking? <laughs> so, uh, what, what do you, what would you would you recommend to like a if a student is thinking you know fourth year they're thinking residency, especially if they're thinking like doing PGY two route. What would kind of be some things you would tell them to? to look for, to opportunities to take, um, kind of, kind of to prepare themselves for, uh, that two year journey. I would say when people are students looking or knowing that if they already want to do a PGY2, definitely keeping that in mind when they're searching for a PGY1, um, you want to take into consideration if they have an early commit process for PGY2s, or what PGY2s they have available at that facility if they're interested in um, staying at the same place for two years, or um, just keeping in mind um, what past PGY1s, what PGY2s they have gone on to at particular programs, because you're gonna have connections with all of those programs um, if you were to happen to match at that particular PGY1 site. Right. I've actually had some friends, some people I know, who are new grads, uh, they're in their PGY-1, and maybe it's not going as well as they thought, they're not enjoying it as much, and they're considering just not doing uh, a, a second year. What, what do you say to that person? Um, do they have options just with a PGY-1, or do they really need to get that PGY-2 to have good options and whatever they want to do? And do you and do you call them a quitter to their <laughs> face, or do you let that slide? No, I wouldn't call them a quitter. I think there's definitely still uh, opportunities for pharmacists who have just completed a PGY-1. I had several co-residents last year that got um, jobs in hospitals, you know, as internal medicine pharmacists or um, just other, other types of jobs out there. So um, I think there's definitely still hospital positions out there for PGY-1 trained pharmacists. It just, it just kind of depends what's available at the time and what, what that students or residents goals are and what kind of um, area they want to work in. Right. So maybe something usually more general, I guess, if you want to be specialized, um, you would need the second year. Yeah. It's definitely getting more and more competitive. So a lot of those specific positions, you know, SICU, CICU pharmacists are looking for PGY2 trained right. residents. Right. Right. And so, like, Brian, obviously you would go with the you're a quitter speech, right? Always. Sure. <laughs> Respect. Uh, kind of jump in there to say is that, um, you know, 
this is a lot uh, about the time that people start to question why did I do this and this time and then February are notoriously um, bad in a resident's lifespan just due to the fact that um, you're don't really see the end in sight there's a lot of work ahead um, you know the, the goal is to get to mid-year to go have to see all your buddies have fun and see uh, and be able to learn a lot and make those connections but um, you know, if you're having that struggles uh, early on or things aren't going quite the way that you are expecting, this is the time to reach out to a mentor uh, and to have that mentorship yeah. to um, kind of guide you and direct you in the and uh, have those difficult conversations or crucial, crucial conversations as we talk about. The other aspect to think about is uh, always to have your focus on your why as to why you're doing this, you know, and so... Um, if you can come up and answer that question, it'll get you through the year um, because the first year is def diff definitely difficult and uh, it takes a little bit of a crazy person to do it again in an entire year. So Maybe Brian should pick up some motivational speaker gigs on the side. I dig it. I do it, man. Yeah, I pay. I mean, the living down by the <laughs> living in a van down by the river speech is still in there if I need it. <laughs> I'm getting older, so a lot of the younger folks don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, you you mentioned mid year. Can somebody can we kind of transition into that a little bit? And I know a lot of people actually. I got a lot of messages on Instagram about students interested in what to do at mid year, how to prepare. Um, can we kind of start going through that a little bit? Because I know that there's def this is the time where people are starting to freak out a little bit and which residency they're going to do and how to make themselves look awesome at, at mid year and other networking opportunities. So can you kind of give us some insight in both of y'all, you know, what your experience was back, you know, Brian, you know, way back then and uh, <laughs> just uh, kind of how <laughs> and just how, you know, what what students should be looking for with the do's and the don'ts. I can give you from both perspectives now. So, I mean, I, I'm obviously I'm an old man now, so I've got, a, <laughs> I have that experience, but then I also now have some of the experience of now I, I will qualify that I'm not an RPD or residency program director. So this does not um, encompass every single RPD's perspective. Um, but for the most part, there's a lot of general do's and don'ts. I think the biggest thing that um, students and PGY1 residents, PGY2s and everybody needs to realize is that, you're not gonna get the job at mid-year, right? So don't come off abrasive, don't come off as uh, cocky or arrogant, uh, but you can definitely lose the job at mid-year. Um, so there's a lot of programs and, and a lot of things that happen within mid-year. If somebody approaches uh, somebody from a program, let's say a student or a PGY-1, um, and they're just displaying a crappy attitude and you, they get handed a CV, there's a lot of programs that will either make a marking on that CD, basically like a code marking of don't, don't interview or basically a way to remember you. And then there's also code words that some programs will use and, uh, and say, you know, this is, this person was, you know, a total jerk and not, not worth interviewing. <laughs> um, so I think that's probably big and, and to, you know, realize that you're not going to get it right then and there. So there's no reason to be, um, really not a ton of reason to be nervous, not a ton of reason to be brash, abrasive, and try to elbow in to try to talk to people. Um, I think the biggest thing too about uh, mid-year and going into the showcase is understanding what the showcase is all about. Um, 
it, if you haven't done any prior research into what residency you're looking for, um, I think the showcase can really be overwhelming. Um, and so I think that uh, a lot of preparation prior to mid-year can go a long way. And so it, it adds the opportunity to go and speak to a lot of the residents or even some program contacts um, that you were researching prior. So going up and doing like cold calls um, to programs is not always the easiest as well because it's kind of an awkward position because it's just people walking by and you're just kind of standing there like, all right, do you want to come talk to me? Or <laughs> So it's kind of a weird situation. And so if a person already knows a little bit about your program, it does go a long way. and It does help. Um, you know, I don't think it hurts to have a CV. Um, it's not we're not necessarily always going to look at it again. Like I said, it may be a good opportunity for them to write down something nice about you. Um, and then I think maybe even once you meet somebody, if you get a, a, a business card or something like that, I think that a follow-up email is always fairly nice to, um, kind of solidify that thought process about that person that you met or, you know, that of them meeting you. So those are just some quick, easy do's and don'ts, but don't be a jerk and be prepared. So do you have experience, Brian, being on the non-student side? Students or PGY1 residents who are looking for PGY2 to definitely have business cards of their own. So when they talk to people at the showcase or anywhere around mid-year to exchange business cards, and that really helps us last year when we were helping our RPD, you know, evaluate the candidates and stuff, if we had a business card or something from them from mid-year, we jotted down some comments if we had a discussion with them, and that helped us remember those conversations and those people. That's a good point. Brian, I got to ask, since you brought up the whole point about don't be abrasive and be a jerk, I, I got to ask, what was your worst impression of seeing a student who was like, just alpha mailing his way to the top of residency. Uh, well, it could have been me. I, <laughs> I, I could, I'm, I could I'm see pretty, it. I'm pretty, uh, pretty aggressive as it is. No, I think I had one student that, um, I wrote a paper on something and they read it and then told me that I was wrong and something that I came up with when my conclusion, at which point I said, well, okay. <laughs> Man, that, that's a bold strategy. That's bold. Yeah. You know, it did not work out for him. Cotton. <laughs> did you give him a code name? Did you write that on a CV? Yeah, it was called Not Never one. Getting Into Residency. <laughs> Not one that I can be reset on a podcast. <laughs> we'll have it in the show notes later. <laughs> That's awesome. So, uh, Tess, what was your experience kind of going through? Leave me out or... <laughs> no, I'll turn you up. That's fine. <laughs> Tess, what was your kind of experience like going through? Like, did you? Was it a good one? Was it nerve-wracking? Um, I actually went as a P3, which I would recommend, I mean, I would tell students they can go, if they can afford it, I wouldn't say you absolutely have to go as a P3, but, um, we had, I had a group of friends and we just decided to go ahead and go and check it out. And I think that actually really helped me as a P4 because I had seen the showcase and knew what it looked like. And there's a lot of people and, uh, figured out how to navigate it and things. So that really helped as a P4 in the residency showcase. And then just going to those educational sessions that they have about forecasts and um, navigating the match and things, I was already fairly aware of how it all worked. So that helped. Nice. What, uh, what were some of the things that you think like students should, um, you know, 
prepare them for? Like, like when you say your CV, you know, should they have anything else? Business card, CV, like what, what else should they come there with? Just, I mean, should they come there prepared with like questions and things like that to ask? Does that show initiative or is it better just to kind of get to know someone, have a regular conversation? Yeah, definitely should come prepared with questions to ask programs that you're interested in. I mean, even just have a set of general questions because you may end up talking to a program that you didn't plan to talk to. You're just walking up and down the aisles of the showcase and you see an empty booth and you just end up talking to them. So just having some general questions available um, and being honest with them. If you end up talking to a program you didn't prepare for, you could tell them that. And if you happen to ask them, something that's on their website, which is kind of a no-no, then, you know, you're covered. But um, I would definitely say come prepared with questions. Yeah, being prepared for questions is great. Also, too, for, uh, you know, dressing appropriately as well. Um, you can see that a lot of times people that uh, uh, just come kind of in a business casual manner. Uh, programs and RPDs can do that, and that also speaks volumes, I think. Um, but not coming prepared, uh, dressed appropriately is, is a big no-no in my head as well. Um, having questions that are uh, not on the website is actually really good. Also not having generic questions that are, uh, I, don't, I don't really know the appropriate way to put it, but asking things that really wouldn't make a difference in a day-to-day -day atmosphere, you know, How's the pharmacy and physician relationship? Well, you know, it's 2018. For the most part, all of these programs are that have a residency program are going to have pretty good physician relationships. And so that's one that we, we I call them eye roll questions because you, you know, a lot of times uh, college of pharmacies and schools of pharmacy teach them to ask these types of questions, which um, for the most part now is turning into the same question from each person over and over and over. So if you actually get some pretty in, uh, insightful and unique questions, that stands out pretty well. Um, and so those are some things to think about and consider as well. Uh, trying to think of uh, other process, you know, um, understanding that a lot of these large academic programs as well are going to have at least 100 people around them at once. And so um, you know, if you're not able to uh, get to these programs, it's not the end of the world. Again, I want people to realize you're not going to get the, the residency at mid-year uh, or a showcase. Uh, and so there's really no need to get, you know, super upset if you're not able to talk to one of those large programs. It's actually some of those middle tier programs that benefit from uh, those programs that they just aren't able to uh, see those high quality candidates. Um, and so that's something to consider as well. So if you do have a program that you really want to talk to, just what, get there early, be there before the doors open and go straight to them? You know, it's not like Black Friday type deal where you got to line up at the door, but it's, it's you know, I mean, there's, you know, I can tell you the University of North Carolina's, the Dukes, the MUSCs are going to be, you know, full of people. Look at that shout out. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> They're just going to, there's going to be a lot of people that are wanting to talk to them. And so there's nothing wrong with that. Like, you know, you shouldn't settle. If you think that you're, you know, uh, filet mignon, you don't want to get treated like skirt skates. So, you know what I mean? So it's one of those things. Uh, but also to realize that you can email folks after the fact, or you can, you know, it's, it's a little uh, awkward just going up and talking to people, but 
you know, if you see people around the meeting and say, hey, I saw you at the, the showcase. I wasn't able to get and talk to you. Do you have a few minutes I can talk to you or exchange business cards so I can email you? I think that's totally appropriate. Um, you know, stalking people is not right. Here at Core Console, we do not endorse stalking. <laughs> <laughs> but here, here. it is uh, a little bit about networking and trying to meet people. And, uh, you know, having that engaging personality does help. So let me, I'm gonna, since, since we did mention uh, Core Console and stuff, I'm going to flip the script a little bit. For as, now that you're, you know, in the role that you're on, if you were to become like a residency director at some point and kind of take over and that's just your main focus, do you think that utilizing things like social media and like marketing yourself, like I guess as a quote-unquote brand, um, people hate that term, but I don't care. Um, you know, marketing yourself as like a brand like that, do you think that would – kind of increase your chances of getting like really high caliber students who have kind of like followed you and watched you along the way? Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly believe in that. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of folks that are um, big in the Twitter game right now, big in Instagram, big in um, the podcast game. So yeah, I think it absolutely, there's some programs, some of your larger programs too are actually, uh, actually requiring some social media and some of the, um, interactions with that and so yeah i think having that brand as you say is is absolutely key especially in today's day uh day and age where um you know a lot of education comes from what did i see a quick blurb about uh, on twitter or instagram do do i know enough about this or do i need to go and uh, research this a little bit more so absolutely i think branding yourself is probably uh, one of the most beneficial things you can do if you do it correctly, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to be famous, not infamous. Right. There you go. Do you guys check out potential residents' social meds before, before <laughs> as the kids say, as the kids say these days, before accepting them? Yeah. Well, I mean, so there are. Uh, we do when we get. So I, I mean, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself is the residency application process. But yeah, I mean, we absolutely do. Uh, check out and make sure that you're not going, you know, going too crazy. So cleaning up uh, some of that social media is uh, worth your time. Um, you know, for the most part, if it's a good enough party, you really don't want to have a picture of it anyway. So um, I know Mikey C's got some of those days I've heard about. <laughs> Involved punching people in the face. I was going to say, I don't know about how many parties I was. I was kind of a, I was, didn't have too much of a uh, fun life. I was too either working as a, you know, doing the fighting thing or in pharmacy school or undergrad. So my twenties were actually kind of boring. And, th- and this was sanctioned fighting for, yeah. for those who didn't know that Mike was an MMA fighter. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I should have mentioned that. <laughs> no, that's cool. I, I totally agree. And I'm, I'm really surprised that students that I'm meeting even now, I think they're like, Oh, we got to delete our Facebooks or Instagram, whatever the heck they're using. And you know, they stay away for it to me. Like if I see someone who's applying to something and, you know, that I'm in charge of selecting and they have all their stuff blocked and everything's private or they don't have anything at all. I'm like, that's kind of weird and shady. Well, what it's kind of stuff are you into? It's kind of funny to see um, that time of the year when everybody starts changing their last name to their middle name or yeah. whatever, you know, so people can't that find move. them. That uh, move. It makes me laugh. It works. You can't find them. Yeah, it, it does work. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's um, it's definitely interesting. I, I agree. I definitely think that uh, it, it, more and more programs will start. Um, I just think that they put so little effort into it right now. A lot of them, not some of them are doing awesome, but some of them put so little effort because it's like kind of like an afterthought that uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out in five years from now when our generation is really like kind of taking over these leadership spots and a lot of the universities and see what uh, how things change. Um, all right, so can we uh, – I'm going to transition a little bit if you don't mind. Unless, do you guys have any other tips or tricks or anything like that for mid-year that you want to add in? Enjoy it. It's really fun. I mean, you get to see – like especially when you go into residency, um, you end up getting to see all your friends and everybody you went to school with. And, uh, oh, always asking your school if there's any scholarships available. Right. Uh, mid-year is very costly, and I, I won't get into a rant on that. But, um, you know, there's uh, – uh, there is opportunity. I mean, in some programs, some will say no, but that puts you in the same exact spot as you were before. So uh, definitely asking for any sort of scholarship and coming up with that is great. And especially as a student, if you can get a poster in the year, it's just another great opportunity. Um, oh, I totally forgot about that. If you're a PGY-1 resident going for a PGY-2 resident, uh, residency, if you have your eye on certain programs, it is not uncommon and definitely worth your while to invite program directors that you're uh, uh, interested in to your poster for mid-year if you're a resident. Um, I did that and was able to facilitate uh, some discussions with some of the RPDs on a one-on-one fashion um, and was able to, um, you know, get more face time with them. Obviously, that's a big time and, you know, you can screw the pooch a little bit with having a bad interaction, but uh, you know, it does make a uh, pretty decent opportunity to have them one-on-one and, and discuss, you know, all pharmacy yourself. Uh, and if you can articulate, articulate uh, well, it, you know, it brings on a good message to those program directors. Gotcha. No, it's definitely a good tip too. I didn't think of really about that either, but that's, that's good. Having them come and be like, yo, I'm an overachiever. Check this out. So <laughs> my uh, name's Mikey C. Yeah, I go by my DJ name whenever <laughs> I'm interviewing, so it's fine. But um, all right, so I actually put on Instagram yesterday uh, that you guys were going to be on the show, and I put a uh, little box like people could ask questions, and I figured I'd get like two, and I got way too many to read. So um, I'm going to kind of go through some of these and just get y'all's answers and opinions. So I can say that I definitely tried to get all these answers, quite you know, or answers for all these questions. But um, the first one is uh, actually from my buddy Paige, the PA, um, out, of, out. Uh, out of Emory. He's a, if you guys don't follow him, you need to check him out. He's, he's a cool guy. Um, he's got strong Instagram, Insta, Instagram game. Instagame. Instagame. He sure does. Uh, I think he's got like 29,000 followers and now, when, and he's just a wear scrubs. Well, when he was on here, he had like, what, 7,000? I know. So I think Gosh. you have to give us credit for that. I feel like it was us, plus I just wish I was more handsome, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> we're just, we're not as good looking. I don't as get him. it. That's the problem. But anyways, um, he, he, what's that? You got a face for radio. That's right. <laughs> so he, he asked the, uh, the, fir- the first question within like six seconds of me posting that and said he would love to hear about their, y'all's thoughts on the use of PAs in critical care medicine and how to succeed and be the best help. Yeah, I mean, so we have a pretty strong uh, mid-level practitioner program here at our, our institution, especially within our critical care arena. Um, we have mid-levels on site for our neurocritical care program, our ED program, our trauma program. Um, and then there's some that take call 
for our CT surge program, and then also uh, plus minus on our medical ICU program. Um, I think they're great. They're, they're a great resource to have. Um, I mean, there's a lot of great PAs and a great mid-level uh, nurse practitioners out there um, that really know their stuff. They're really up to date on the literature. You can facilitate a lot of great discussions uh, and really uh, bang out some good care uh, to patients. I think that they're good at um, uh, being that intermediary between um, solving a lot of uh, problems that could snowball into a big, big problem later. And so having them there and having them bedside and them being really, really bulldogs for their patients, right? So even when it comes down to some of their physician attendings, I've seen some of the PAs uh, and mid-levels get um, pretty fired up about some of these docs coming in and trying to take control. And they say, hey, this is my patient. And it really worked out. I mean, they're really well educated and um, they're really well um, versed in, in a lot of the practices. And so... I think having them on your team or not utilizing them properly is a, um, or not having them part of the team is probably a, a big um, area that a lot of institutions can work on um, implement or uh, putting into practice. But yeah, I mean, I have a lot of strong relationships with a lot of my uh, mid-levels and um, it, it's great. They're a great resource. I don't know how much you know about their, um... well, go ahead. I would just have to agree with everything Brian said. I, I've been able to develop a lot of great relationships with our mid-levels as well. And then um, they're very accessible, maybe when the physician or other providers aren't available. So um, I think they are very beneficial. And I'm a huge fan of the multidisciplinary team. So that goes for um, everyone that's a part of the team. And I'd have to say, I guess, I don't know, maybe I'm a little biased because my significant other is um, going to be a PA, so of course I love them. <laughs> well, my significant other happens to be a PA as well. Um, and going to that, do you know, I don't know how much you know about their integration, um, at least into your institution, do they have to have any specialized training to work uh, in critical care with y'all, or can they just come right in from, you know, like being at a primary care practice for five years and just go at it? I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I think they have a I wouldn't call it a residency program, but it's like a adopted or uh, modified residency program. So I know at least with some of our trauma PAs and neuro mid levels, like you spend a lot of time on orientation before you're actually uh, integrated into the team solo. And so, I mean, it's, you're talking three to six months before you're actually, um, you know, flying solo on some of these things. And gotcha. so I think that a lot of, um, and then it goes back to be, with pharmacists being great uh, support staff for that uh, new mid-level that um, may not necessarily uh, know 100% what's going on with your facility. And so you, it's a great opportunity. And that's usually where you build those uh, relationships is when they're in that orient, orienting uh, period. Yeah, absolutely. So um, somebody asked the next question was, how does BCPS differ from the BC CCP? <laughs> so I'm both, yeah, I, I paid the money and I did both, but- uh, <laughs> Respect. What's that? <laughs> I said respect, that's awesome. Oh, uh, well, you know, alphabet soup, man, that's what I'm going for, I guess. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, B BCPS is more of general uh, pharmacotherapy, and so it encompasses um, really 
all the things you learned in curriculum and not just critical care. So it includes critical care, uh, administration, infectious disease, cardiology, uh, geriatrics, you know, a lot of, a lot of different areas. Whereas critical care is, a, or the BCCCP is actually, <laughs> that's, that's the word on the street is what we call it. I yeah. love it. That's what Mikey C calls it. We have our secret handshake, but nice. um, the uh, uh, BCCC, whatever it is, is more, it's all critical <laughs> care. Um, it, the questions are designed for a critical care pharmacist um, in practice. Um, also, too, in terms of when you can take that is a little bit different. So for the critical care, uh, you have to have had uh, two years of residency with the, the last year being in critical care, or it's like five to seven years experience. Uh, BCPS, it's like you can take after three years of pharmacy experience or after your first year of residency. So I took BCPS after my first year of residency, um, thinking that it would help me be a little bit more marketable. But... Um, there's some gripe on whether or not people should um, get uh, board certified or if it's just a way to make money through the organizations. And I think it just shows that you take pride within your uh, profession if you're trying to get board certified. Um, it just has more or, or your or your providers and the people that you work with on a daily basis are going to uh, see that pride that you take within the work. And um, I think that it helps uh maybe instill some confidence in some of your folks that you're working with on a daily basis. So um, I don't know if you necessarily need both because CE wise, there's, there's some uh, nuances with it, but um, definitely having one or the other is, is, is not bad. Um, I just chose to get both because I thought it would be help me be marketable when I was a PGY one going for, or a PGY two going for a job. And so, and then I just took the B triple C in uh, the spring. And so they offer them two times a year and uh, you pay the fee and you take the test and it takes eight to 10 weeks or, you know, they, they uh, take their time grading on it uh, to make sure that uh, none of the test questions are uh, jacked up or anything, but no, I think they're both good, but they're, they are a little bit different. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Why do they take so long to grade that thing? Like, can't you just scan on that joker? Yeah. You know, you would think now it's 2018 is, you know, a little hole punch or whatever, but no, they, I think they do evaluate each question, especially because not every question is, you know, there's very few things within our world that's black and white, especially within the pharmacy game. And so um, I think they try to see, um, you know, maybe averages and try to balance out the, uh, the answers as best they can and then evaluate if it was a bad test. You know, writing questions is hard too, mm -hmm. right? Uh, good test questions is even more difficult. So I think that's probably why. Gotcha. So um, somebody else wrote, uh, what is the craziest thing that you've seen or had to do for a patient uh, while working in a the ICU type setting? I don't know if this is the craziest thing, but today actually, a few hours ago, um, <laughs> We had an actually pretty slow, boring, you know, first half of the afternoon, and then, of course, everything kind of hits at once. So we get a um, patient that rolls in post-cardiac arrest um, who we thought was coming in with a pulse and all that, and they were actually actively coding the patient as they came in. So we all shifted our um, treatment plans and gathered all of the supplies that we needed as quickly as we could, and then... Um, you know, a couple minutes into that, we have a patient out in the ED waiting room seizing. So 
we had to delegate tasks between Brian and I and attend to both of those patients at the same time. So um, I don't know, maybe not the craziest thing I've seen off the top of my head, but that was um, that was today. That'll get the adrenaline going. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, the craziest, I mean, critical care, I mean, it can be encompassing, but it, critical care, ED medicine, a little bit, a little bit different. Um, so craziest, I always try to go with, um, more ED medicine, um, things that roll through the ED or trauma bay. Um, I think clamshell traumas or open thoracotomies where you actually are doing cardiac massage is probably the craziest thing I've ever seen. Jeez. We've done, I don't know, four or five years that I've been a part of, and then, I think the absolute craziest one I've ever been in uh, was uh, down in Miami during my PGY-1 with uh, uh, Ruben Santiago, a.k.a. the ED Traumacist. Follow him if you don't follow him. He, he is a, He's a good one to follow as well. Um, but by the end of that clamshell trauma, I actually had like blood-soaked shoes that I had to throw them away. It was just so gross. But... Uh, for those who don't know, it's like open thoracotomy is they'll open it up and they call it clamshell because the rib cage looks like a clamshell and, you know, dropping uh, intracardiac uh, epi is, is pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things and I'm sure everyone else has their own stories, but um, that one is probably one of the ones that stands out for me. I don't know. I don't have stories like that. <laughs> you, you don't understand though. Like I seriously, I stuck like a one and a half inch gate, you know, neat inch <laughs> long needle in this guy's arm. That thing was a 25 gauge and he bled like for four seconds straight. There was blood dripping all the way down to his elbow. <laughs> it was either blood or most of his flu vaccine. I couldn't tell. <laughs> That's as crazy as it gets gross. <laughs> it was gnarly. So, uh, yeah, but, um, yeah, that's crazy. That's that's pretty awesome. That's awesome. Glad to have you guys doing what you do. All right, what else we got for questions? We got um, somebody asked about, I guess, your how you go about managing hypotension, and then someone else right after that asked, what do you think about the new vasopressor? You wanna? I mean, I can I can tell my general approach. So. For a patient that rolls in hypotensive or is hypotensive on the unit, um, you know, the, the first things that come to my mind are, you know, what's the etiology, like what, what exactly is the uh, rationale or reason they're actually hypotensive at this point? Is it infectious? Is it uh, hypovolemic? Is it hemorrhagic? You know, all of these things that go through my head. And so um, that's the number one uh thing I think about first. Okay. So what's, what's the cause? And then I try to narrow it down to what is most likely at that point. Um, next for fluid resuscitation one, I want to make sure that I'm picking the appropriate fluid. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of data, especially in the critical care world. Um, that's probably emerged the past five, six years is the use of more balanced, uh, crystalloids versus, uh, unbalanced, so normal saline versus like lactated ringers and yada, 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 things like that. The, uh, the next thing I think about too is, is this patient appropriate for fluids at all? Do I need to assess if they're going to be fluid responsive? Um, or do I need to go ahead and switch to pressors? And there's, so, there's all different types of ways to assess fluid responsiveness. Um, you know, things to consider too is, is the patient intubated or are they not intubated? Um, can I perform, do I have an art line to be able to tell me true, uh, pulse pressure variations? Do I have anything to tell me about cardiac function? 
all of these different things, again, to assess fluid response in this. And then, you know, do I go ahead and switch to a, a vasopressor or do I switch to an inotrope? Um, so those are just a quick and dirty um, uh, approach to hypotension is one, you know, fluid resuscitation, is it appropriate? And then two, vasopressor support. Um, I'll let her get into a little bit about geopressa uh, and angiotensin two, um, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, so here at Wesley, we have decided to not add a geopressa to our formulary as of now. Uh, we would really like to see some more safety data. Um, all we really have right now is the ATHOS-3 trial, which did show an increased risk of thrombolic events um, with the use of the medication. So uh, it did show an increase in the patient's math within that study. Um, however, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but I don't think it was powered to statistically show those differences either. Um, it was a fairly small study with only about 300 patients, so hard to really extract, you know, take that data for what it's worth, but um, I, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you're looking at it like 150 patients roughly with this medication. The thing about Geopressa or angiotensin 2 is it's actually not a new medication. Uh, if you actually look back into the 50s and 60s, like the pharmacist nerd I am, is that it actually is, uh, there was old data with angiotensin 2. And so it comes with a pretty hefty price tag. And so with that said, I mean, we're never going to withhold uh, medication from a patient that we think it would benefit. But for severe vasoplegias, that's refractory to fluids and uh, ordinary vasopressors. Um, we're limited in our options. And so, you know, having an option like angiotensin 2 would be great. However, at the same time, um, there's just not enough data to support um, its use at this time, right? So we're, hit, we're hitting more of the wait and see type of atmosphere. Do we need to go ahead and uh, add it to formulate now? No, I don't think so. Um, there's no outcomes-based data that we've seen yet from the, from the drug company or the studies to uh, make us add it to formulary, you know, due to, uh, due to the cost and the potential safety data that's there. And so, you know, it's for those that did add it, I know that they are pretty stoked about it and love it. And so I hope to see a lot of their data. And um, for those that didn't add it, you know, realize you're not alone and, and any pressure that you're getting from uh, some of your providers, there are, there are alternatives, um, you know, not also not widely studied and definitely um, have uh, adverse effects profiles that uh, aren't always necessarily desirable, but there is, um, there is potential for um, it to, to change our mind later, but as of right now, it's it's not on our formulary. So, yeah, there you go. Geoprose, step up your game. Jeez. Mm. There it is. Athos they, they, they should have sponsored us. Now we have to talk, talk about them in the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. We would have done it anyway. And then just take the money. And then just take the money back. Thanks. Thanks for <laughs> donation. You just sent two pharmacy podcasters to mid-year or something. <laughs> All right. Anyways. So um, kind of in closing, uh, Brian, um, do you have any uh, research coming out that we can all look forward to reading? Yeah, I actually have a, a paper that was just accepted that'll be coming out in, uh, in AACN Crit Care, which is a nursing journal on sepsis updates where I go into really uh, long detail about uh, de-resuscitation of fluid and fluid stewardship 
Um, so that's coming out. It just was accepted. So hopefully it uh, will get into publication soon. Uh, and then I've got a case report of uh, thrombolytics in uh, a patient with uh, Wegener's granulomatosis, uh, uh, in which they developed a uh, spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. So that was a case report we wrote that was accepted at AJHP. So hopefully that'll be coming out here soon as well. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, I got a couple things in the pipeline, but no acceptance yet. So we'll see. That's awesome, man. I can't believe you stole that case report. I was going to write on something like that. So. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> Next time. So that's awesome, man. Do you, you, uh, you, you, you enjoy writing a lot? Because I feel like you get stuff just cranking out as far as publications. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it goes back into, like, you know, I, I, I stay up a lot. I listen to podcasts, and I, I read a lot, and then I, I will try to write as well. And so, you know, the biggest thing is just uh, – just keep doing it. A lot of people are like, I'm not a good writer. Well, so you don't write much, you know, so you won't be good at it. You don't, uh, don't keep doing it, but no, that's cool. Yeah. It's, it's definitely impressive for sure. It makes me realize what a slacker I am, but, uh, I definitely, uh, want to do, do more eventually. So kind of in closing, what other stuff do you guys, uh, anything else you guys want to add or talk about? It's not, not a trick uh, question. You know what would be really good is if uh, we can find somebody that's uh, a big controversy on critical care right now is uh, uh, the anti-10A uh, reversal index and at alpha. I know you, you posted a couple times about it. You know, within the critical care world right now, that's pretty uh, controversial as to do we add it or do we not add it? Uh, do we stick with prothrombin complex concentrate, PCC versus index and SO? I'd love to get on and debate with somebody if you can find anybody at work or wanting to, mm. want to go up against the champ. Oh, man. <laughs> That'd be fun. That sounds awesome. We need to get – I've been telling Cole we need to get way more controversial on this show. Yeah. And he doesn't listen. He wants to be nice What's and stuff. What's the line? Humpty Dumpty over there. Yeah. <laughs> Crap, get off the pot. Well, listen, find who you want to argue with and when we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get him on. Yeah. You know? That way you can pick, like, somebody who doesn't know that much stuff about it and then you just – Take him to school. I think Brian. I take him to town. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no man, that'd be awesome. That would be really cool. Um, it would be bigger than the McGregor fight. Almost. We'd get pay per view subscribers. Yes. We had two students do it that were on rotation with me, and it it was a success, big time. Really? I'll, I'll debate that. Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. We should do it. We should. We'll have to start. I'll have to start posting on Reddit and be like, hey, who wants to debate blank? <laughs> There's going to be some dude in like Austria that's like, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we only debate people from the U.S. of A. <laughs> Just get completely ridiculous and lose all of our followers <laughs> immediately. Which we have a lot of non-USA followers and we love you guys Yes, too. we're totally joking. We love you guys. <laughs> Everybody. It even takes five seconds to listen to the show. It's amazing. There you go, Tony again yes that's what i'm here for what cole's here for keep it keep it pg <laughs> no we, and then we'll right after that we'll need we'll argue uh a1c control uh, and diabetes patients that way we can all uh we can just switch topics around like crazy and just Whole keep spectrum. people guessing <laughs> if some people have like a critical care podcast or like you know Family medicine. Nope. We just were like, yeah, we'll just do everything. Well, that's we, why we didn't give it a specific name. It's called know, the Core Console Podcast. We, we know a lot about two subjects, and yet we'll do everything. <laughs> we'll talk about anything. 
<laughs> but I do appreciate you guys. Well, uh, if it is out of your comfort zone, I know you guys do the research. I've seen like your your notes when I listen to the podcast. So it's pretty dope. I like that. I appreciate it, man. We enjoy it a lot. Oh, did we lose them? No, we're here. But um, all right, guys. So uh, we're going to uh, let y'all roll. But really appreciate y'all being here. And um, you know, I know how busy both of you are. So I definitely appreciate the time. And uh, we will anytime you guys want to promote some research or anything else. You guys are always welcome back. We'll have the audio better next time and ready to go. So you won't wait. Uh, that's I really appreciate you doing this. I know this is kind of like a random thing to do on residency, but I appreciate it for sure. You taking the time. Yeah, of course. All right, y'all have a great night. Be safe, and we will talk to you guys next time. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Cole. Thank you. Go save some lives. Thank y'all. Thank y'all for listening, too. Have a good one.